Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Welcome back to another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Caitlin, and with me, as always, is my husband and very best friend, Trevor. Hey, bestie. Bestie. You are so good at that intro. <laughs> it took you no... T- it took Jeremy and I a, a fucking year to do it right. And um, you've got it like, boom. Because I'm a bad bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite intro ever. How have you been? Good. It's, it's been a, a hot minute since I've seen you. Uh, didn't we record right before I went to the beach? Yeah, it's you've you've gone on a beach trip. I've interviewed two different authors at this point. Um, it's been it's been a minute. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. So what you been up to? Well, since the beach trip, I, I've been working. I mean, that's not as fun. No, just working, and you know, you know where I live. <laughs> I've been at home with you and, and Doug. I mean, you you should you should just like make up a a whole story. You know, I've been out slaying vampires. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you count the adventures I've been on in my books. Yeah, those are more adventurous. Yeah, for sure. Well, hit us up with some news. What's new in your neighborhood? In in my book neighborhood. Yeah. We're doing that? We're just hitting it right up? I have no idea what we're doing. I guess we can do that, yeah. We both brought notes. I'll we say did. this. This is kind of fun. We both brought notes, and I was like, oh, my gosh, you typed your notes this time? <laughs> and I typed my notes this time, and then I look at her notes, and I look at my notes. My notes are in an 11-point font. And mine are in 20. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny to me. And my, I have twenty twenty vision, so it's not like <laughs> it's not like after LASIK that I need giant the, the giant font. But you took the you took like a a twenty point Calibri font over there. Um, I don't know why. It's a, I mean it it was a choice. It's funny. Yeah. It, it I I guess it speaks to maybe maybe someone can psychoanalyze some fonts over here. <laughs> Like maybe, we learn a little bit maybe more. Maybe your about each teacher other. brain is used to twelve point font because you make your students type their papers in twelve point. Yeah, well, I mean that's true. I I have an aneurysm when I see a paper that doesn't come in twelve point Times New Roman font with one inch margins. I just it, my brain explodes. Yeah, so maybe, I will I will go ham on some students when they do that. Yeah, so maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. You'd get an F for your notes if you pass them in. <laughs> Teacher, take my notes. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. <laughs> I'm going to set these on fire. Do it again. <laughs> okay, so I only have um, three things to report in the publishing world for me. Oh, okay. But I'm quite excited about all three. Yeah. Um, two of them come out in July. One of them is Ooh. late November, or is early November. But, okay, yeah. Um... The first one is uh, Lil Vincent is, she is coming out. She's writing under a pen name. Oh. Uh, You know what? I thought Lilith Vincent for sure was her pen name already. No. She's writing as Chloe Chastain. Ooh, I like that too. Okay. She's writing a new fantasy series. 
uh, fantasy romance. Okay. Um, the first book is The Flame King's Captive. Dig it. It's a Faded Mate series. Anything that has flame and captive in it, I'm like, let's go. Yeah. It comes out July 12th. Okay. Super excited for that's, that. That's pretty soon. That's around the corner. And it's like an Omegaverse. I don't oh, know if you know anything about it. I those. know nothing about it. Yeah, apparently, I think it's like Shifter. Okay. Like, she's mm. putting out spoilers. There's, I don't know if you know anything about Knots. I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, all yeah, right. Yeah, I'm not going to share it with our with our audience, <laughs> but... <laughs> You can look that up if you want to. But it's spicy. <laughs> Be careful about it. Maybe Google with the safe search on. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's, that's uh, I'm looking forward to that. Okay, this is, uh, settle it, this is the dumbest interruption I'm going to make ever. We were talking uh, at work today. We were, Jeremy, um, Lillian, Hunter, and I were having a conversation uh, you've you've heard uh, those of you who have listened to the show before. You know, of course, Jeremy is the the editor in chief and owner of Slay House. Um, Lillian is uh, one of our interns. She assisted in the uh, editing of our latest uh, Tales of Slay House compilation, and uh, Hunter's just a dude. Uh, but we were having a conversation about what is the sexiest fruit. Or not fruit. I'm sorry. What is the sexiest food? And uh, and and what what would you th- say is the sexiest food? Hmm. It's a sexy food. Any food. Any any food, but it's got to be sexy. Hmm. I would think it would be in the dessert category. You think? Yeah. I mean, I, there's no correct answer. I mean, there's a correct answer in my mind, but I don't, I don't know. That there's necessarily a correct answer. Yeah, I definitely think it's a dessert. I know there are wrong answers. Yeah, there are definitely wrong answers. Yeah. Um. Jeremy said oysters. I thought, I mean... It, I think he's thinking of the aphrodisiac. Yes, that, I think that's exactly what he, he was saying. That doesn't make it sexy. It's the unsexiest food I can think of. You're eating something living and you're but, slurping. And it's like slurping and, and and you get all that like weird mucusy stuff on your face. No, thank no. you. No. Mm-mm. Yeah, he has to be thinking about the, the aphrodisiac. I, I know that, that that was exactly what he was saying, you know, but I'm like, that's that doesn't make sense. Mm-mm. It's sexy. No, I think it's a dessert. What yeah. kind of a dessert do you think? Uh, my brain immediately goes to, like, creme brulee or tiramisu or... Creme brulee? Interesting. Okay. All right. That could be a little sexy. Cheesecake or... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Something, anything with chocolate. For me, I definitely said uh, chocolate-dipped strawberries. Oh, yes. That was where, when I just said chocolate, I was thinking of chocolate-dipped strawberries. That would be like the pinnacle of sexy food, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is a weird conversation to have. (laughs) (laughs) I just, uh, It was a good interruption. (laughs) I had to know. I had to know. All right. Okay. Um, Second one is uh, Sarah Kate. Okay. You know my love for Sarah Kate. Yes, I do. Uh, for our listeners, uh, she was the Salacious Players Club. Yeah, that's right. You you read that whole thing. Um, and it's still not over. There's one more book oh, coming out. Oh, all right. Okay. Possibly two. That's pretty exciting. But I know one for sure. 
Um, she's got a new series coming out. Uh, it's the Good Brothers series, and it comes out July 14th. Okay. Um, a preacher, a homewrecker, a teacher, and an outcast. Those are some good brothers. What happens when a family <laughs> of saints become sinners? Hmm. And they each get their own book. Is that their the tagline? Yeah, that was the tagline. Okay, all right. So, so turn up for the turn up for what? What do you mean? Turn down for what? Turn Is that, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm saying. But yeah, so that should be a new spicy series. Okay, I'm sure I will hear all about it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you will. From Sarah Kate, you definitely will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, last but not least, uh, Katie Robert. Katie Robert. Um, I, I dig her stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm reading The Dragon's Bride. <laughs> and uh, boy, does that have some stuff in it. Yeah. I mean, but I like it. I'm really enjoying it, honestly. We might grace all of our listeners with, with that fun. We may have to have a conversation. You know, I've I've long been kicking around the idea of like, would Katie, would a Katie Robert ever come on this show? I don't know. I, I, I have no idea, but I, I'm tempted to find. I'm tempted to find out. I don't know. I have no idea. But but, it, but all I'm saying is that uh, you know the Dragon's Bride is like, it's fun. It's so fun. I believe it. Yeah. I can't wait to read it. Um, but this, her book comes out November seventh. It's a new fantasy romance called Hunt on Dark Waters. Ooh, okay. Um, is this is a new fantasy series? I don't know like if it's, it's a series. It's not, it's, a, it's not related to the Deal with the Demon series no. or whatever. This okay. is a new book. I don't know if it's a series. Um, okay. From what I read, I think it's just a single fantasy, like a, a standalone. Okay. Uh, but the cover and the colors on it make me think it's a mermaid book. Well, it is mermaid. Well, just because it's mermaid doesn't mean a book that comes out in November is going to be about mermaids. Oh, that's true. But. <laughs> Good point there. Good point, yeah. But yeah, so three of my favorite authors. Fantastic. All coming out with uh, something new. Okay, yeah. So. All right. Well, that's some exciting news. Yeah. But the stuff definitely to watch out for. Yeah. I know I will be watching out for Katie Robert. That sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. In November. Well, we've got some news over at Slay House. Um, for one, uh, Jeremy has just done a reading of uh, Poe's Telltale Heart. And if you're interested in listening to his dramatic reading, uh, in which he puts on an accent, you can check out. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because Jeremy with an accent is definitely a treat. Um, you can find that on Acast Premium uh, by following us. I think it's like $3 a month. Similarly, you can go over to our Patreon where you can find that too. We've also got another radio drama coming soon. This is Lord Charrington's guest, I think. Um, an adaptation of that story. Uh, but anyway, that's that's coming and dropping on Acast Premium pretty soon as well. So if you're interested in listening to those exclusive uh, audio readings, you know, they're kind of like books on tape, uh, you can find us uh, Acast Premium or you can find our, our Patreon and uh, support us over there. We always appreciate your support. Um, some books 
are coming out soon uh, over the, the course of May. I'm not sure when we're going to record. I, I mean, we've got, what, two more weeks to record episodes, and then I've got a slew of authors who are coming on. Um, listen, this is this is super fun. Previewing our summer and just plugging a little bit, if you listen in uh, regularly, first, know that we love you. But also... Um, Get excited because we've got some author interviews on the horizon. We have Daniel Krauss coming at the end of this month. Uh, that episode will probably release the first week of June. We also have uh, Philip Fricassi, who is coming in, talking about The Boys in the Valley, his new book from Tor Nightfire. Um, we're going to have that interview probably the second week of June. Uh, and then I am also bringing in... K.C. Jones, author of Black Tide. He is going to be here uh, again in June. So June is going to be packed full of some great authors. We're going to StokerCon. We're going to talk about StokerCon stuff in July. We've got uh, Catherine Silva coming in talking about her new book. Um, I think The Wild Fall is the name of that book. Um and it, I think it's going to be a great time, honestly. I've been reading a lot of these books. I've been reading these uh, literatures. And uh, I highly recommend all of them. We're going to talk about uh, one of them, Daniel Krauss's book, uh, in just a moment when we talk about what we've been reading. But, yeah, some exciting stuff from Slay House to kind of check out. Oh, yeah, and I uh, <laughs> thank you for reminding me. Um, we're also having... Uh, Desiree uh, Nicoli on the show. Um, she's going to come in and talk about Call to the Deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very excited about uh, that, especially speaking of Mermay. Mm-hmm. She just had an episode come out with the She Wore Black podcast today. So I need to listen to that. Um, if you, yeah, this is the second time uh, for her coming on the show to talk about Mermay. And uh, super fun conversation there. Um, Again, that dropped technically yesterday by the time you hear this. But I'm a huge fan of that show. I am always going to plug it when I get a chance um, when those stars align. Check out that episode and then listen later this summer when we have a conversation with Desiree as well. Really, really cool stuff. All exciting stuff. Um, But some books are releasing this month that I'm pretty excited about. Speaking of mermaid, how about a book where a mermaid and a plague doctor show up at a village full of ageless children who thirst for blood? Does that sound interesting? Mm-hmm. Well, that is the premise of The Salt Grows Heavy by Cassandra Caw, which came out May 2nd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a novella. Cassandra Caw always writes with very electric prose. And uh, I think this is going to be a really fun book. My copy is arriving tomorrow. So by the next time we have an episode, I probably will have read it and we can talk about it a little bit. Also, uh, another book that just came out May 3rd was The Stradivarius by Ray Knowles. That came out from Bridget's Gate Press. Uh, Again, May 3rd. This is about a woman who inherits a Victorian house that may or may not be haunted by her father's ghost. And she sets out with a couple of uh, people from the town to try to uncover the secrets of his unsolved murder. 
Interesting. Interesting indeed. It's got some queer rep in it. Um, Ray Knowles is uh, pretty well known in the indie circles for writing some really great shit. Um, this is a book that I actually pre-ordered. I downloaded it. I have been swamped with the end of school, but I really can't wait to get into the Stradivarius. So, again, you can find that online, basically anywhere you want to get your books from Bridget's Gate Press. And then released May 9th, that was just a couple of days ago, from Poisoned Pen Press, is Graveyard of Lost Children by Katrina Monroe. A lot of people are saying this is the scariest book they've read this year. Um, It is about uh, a girl whose mother tries to kill her as a child, and she grows up with a fear of doing the same thing to her own children when she gets pregnant. Seems super creepy, super scary. It is a book that I spotted on a table weeks ago. Um, I was about to say, I thought you bought that. I did buy that, and it was a book that I don't think was supposed to be on that table. Uh, but, but they sold it to you. But they sold it to me anyway. And so, uh, yeah, looks super good. Can't wait to read it. Uh, and then coming May 30th from Tor.com is Witch King by Martha Wells. This is more of a kind of traditional fantasy sort of story. I have no information about it because the blurb that they give for the book makes absolutely no sense because it is relying on context we don't have. But it's got wizards. We like wizards. Yeah, it's apparently a a wizard or something like that. Uh, Gets trapped in some kind of a wizard spell trap. And a a young mage tries to come and steal their power. And uh, that doesn't go well. Mm -mm. Yeah. So uh, I'm kind of interested in it. Martha Wells is someone I know more for her science fiction than I do her fantasy. Uh, But I'm really interested in uh, finding out what she has in store. So, yeah, fun, exciting stuff. Uh, Colin and I have been talking about uh, reading The Witch King basically since last year when we found out that it was coming out. So cool stuff to look forward to in May. In the news this week, um, there's quite a bit happening, quite a bit of discourse um, over a certain magazine, Space and Time magazine, uh, is holding an open submissions call for AI-generated fiction. And its contributing editor for this uh, particular AI call is Leonard Spicer. He is an AI tech investor and venture capitalist. And the Horror Writer Association is uh, sponsoring him as a host for an AI webinar. And this has a lot of people upset. A lot of people are talking about where the place of AI is in art. Of course, you've probably heard of ChatGPT, which is an AI writing tool that basically takes a lot of stuff from all over the internet and kind of cobbles it together into the format of whatever it is that you try to tell it. So if you need an outline for a book report or something like that, it's going to give you an outline. If you need, sometimes if you want it to write entire stories for you, you feed it a prompt and it'll spit something out for you. This has driven a lot of conversation about how do how are we supposed to use this AI? You know, 
What is this really doing to the arts? And can we call something that is not actually generated by a human, human art? What do we call it? Can you even uh, trademark this stuff? So I kind of want to pitch it to you um, a little bit just to open up the door of conversation here. How do you feel about AI art? And uh, would you even call it AI art? I have yet to hear about this. This is the first I'm hearing. It is all over the Twitter sphere. Uh, and specifically this magazine making a call because there there have been other magazines like Clark's World um, just a couple months ago kind of said that they had to close their submissions because they were flooded with AI submissions. And Clark's World is not interested in, in producing or um, publishing AI written stories, you know. So there's this question of, you know, how are we using AI? What are we doing with it? Um, and can we call this stuff that an AI is generating art? Can we call that art? Well, my first question would be, are we trying to pass it as human art? Ooh, I, you know, I don't know. I, 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 let me say this. There are a lot of people who are. Yeah. I think they're, they're trying to say, well, I was the one who gave it the prompt. I was the one who, um, you know, gave it the elements to work with. And now, you know, this AI stuff is, it's evaluating for me. And, uh, and I'm still driving the, the forklift, you know, <laughs> I'm still driving the vehicle. So, uh, who cares what engine I'm using? Mm, I don't know if I agree with that. It's, I mean, maybe to some extent. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of like, hear me out, a parent trying to take credit for their kid's work. Well, mm. I gave birth to it. Mm. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I created it. I, mm. therefore, should take credit for everything it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, just because, yeah. you, just because you created it doesn't mean that everything that comes out of it is because of you. Sure. So, so just because, I mean, you, you can't take credit simply because you're the one that fed it that prompt or you're the one that, that mm -hmm. put its pieces together or, yeah, you know, you, at some point you have to say, well, it, I mean, at what point do we say that these AI have their own, I wouldn't say conscience, but their own, what word am I looking for? Um, I don't know. Agency? Agency. Uh -huh. Yeah. At what point yeah. do they have their own agency? Do we give mm -hmm. them their own credit? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When are they making the choices and when when are we uh, or, or when are they not? <clears throat> I mean, they're OK. So a lot of like like chat GPT, right? A lot of what it is doing is just scraping up what's available on the Internet and piecing it together, cobbled it together. So a lot of arguments right now is that, like, this isn't really AI. AI can't generate anything. So it's kind of just taking scraps. It's just taking scraps and it's combining them in a way that, you know, whatever algorithm it's it's being taught uh, determines, you know, what, what its output is going to be. So if you look at, like, AI-generated art, not writing, but AI-generated art, uh, it's just, it's taking from Creative Commons. It's taking from 
all of the available images on the internet and it's recombining those images into something familiar based on what it thinks, you know, is the thing that we're looking at. Yeah. And and so, so it's, it's not original. It's not original. It's derivative. And it can only ever be derivative and iterative because it's just taking from other artists who have actually done the work and it, it's just recombining them into this product, right? And I think that this is um, this is a conversation that we had uh, last week with Bethany Cole. And it's uh, an episode. I, I really want to plug that episode again um, because I didn't get my graphics ready until you're hearing this. Um, but uh, go back and listen to that episode because Bethany Cole, she's a, a, an actual artist. Um, she does painting. Uh, she does watercolors. She does. Um, she she said she's teaching herself how to do, um, uh, I think, acrylic paintings right now. And so uh, she's she actually does physical media. She's a photographer, <clears throat> and she's also a translator and philosopher and um, uh, currently a, a PhD student at the University of Arkansas. So she, she has a lot of knowledge about this stuff. And she was talking specifically about AI art and the way that it, it really is trying to just supplant an actual artist, right? Take away the human element by mimicking human uh, art. And, and the two are not the same, right? Yeah. It, it, the synthetic art is just uh, it, it's missing the, the real human agency, the real human uh, element. You have to really question what choices because for me, it all boils down to choice, right? Art is about making choices and making bold choices and making choices that are informed, I think, by human experience and human vision. And I think that when you give a machine the ability to choose for you, you've, you know, you've, when you relinquish your agency over to the machine, it's no longer art. It no longer uh, comes from human hands. It's no longer uh, decision making that is being made by human beings. We're, we're allowing um, uh, machines to make the decisions for us. And it doesn't matter if we go in and, and say, like, well, we chose the prompt. We chose the elements that the story needs to include. It, it, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, you're some great architect or, or anything like that. You're still giving the creative decision making, the creative uh, agency over to the machine to choose for you what that story is going to end up looking like. Yeah. I don't think that's human art. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't think it no. is. Furthermore, I think that uh, this dude is really problematic because he's an investor in this AI technology. All he wants to do is use it to make profit. And I think that profiting from art that is created by AI, by taking away that uh, economic impulse for, for or, or that economic compensation for artists, I think it, it, it lessens the value of human labor. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is a weird moment, too, because uh, we're talking about the Writers Guild Association or, or, or I'm sorry, the Writers Guild of America um, is on strike right now. They are not producing scripts for Hollywood or for, uh, you know, television networks. Writers Guild of, of America um, is a huge organization of writers who 
have basically said, you know, we are not being paid appropriately. We are not being compensated for the writing that we do to create the media that people watch, that people enjoy. We don't get ad revenue. You know, we don't get uh, uh, kickbacks or royalties for any of this stuff. A lot of them are saying, you know, one of the problems is that they're, uh, you know, being told that they're going to get paid a flat rate for scripts that they produce. So if they create something um, on contract, you know, for for an eight-episode miniseries or whatever, and that miniseries goes to a streaming service and it blows up and it's huge and everybody's watching it, well, none of that revenue is coming back to the writers because they were paid a flat rate. They don't get royalties or anything like that. Same with, you know, like a lot of shows that go into syndication. If they're not paid royalties on those uh, those episodes they write, then, you know, that show can continue to be in the public zeitgeist shaped by that particular writer and they get no monetary compensation back from it. And that's a problem, right? And so already we've been talking about how AI is primed to take away human um, agency over art. But moreover, we're talking about how AI is being uh, uh, constructed, is kind of being trained to supplant humans. Because if we can get rid of the human beings in the, the equation, then we can increase our, our profit margins. Because we can create stories, we can create TV shows, we can create scripts, are entirely AI generated. And if we do that, we cut out the human writers altogether and we bank all of that money that, that maybe we would have spent on art. And I think that this is hugely dystopian. I think it's going yeah. to continue to be dystopian, you know? Um, and so I, I, you know, I side with human artists. I'm sorry, but I... I as interesting as the technology may seem to some, the only reason that anyone is really interested in it is because those in power want to displace more workers and pocket that money. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not cool with that. Uh, so I look at this, uh, you know, magazine, this call for submissions, and they're saying, you know, like, oh, we want your IA generated or AI uh, generated fiction. Um, so, you know, you humans and you AI enthusiasts, send over your stuff and we're going to publish it. You know, we're going to put out a whole magazine that people read uh, and it's all going to be just uh, made by machine. Or, you know, sometimes made by machine man hybrid. And I think that sucks, man. I really think it sucks. Yeah. I want a human future. Yeah, (laughs) I do not want a a future, you know, ruled by machines. And it's not just that. Right. I want a a few an equitable future. I want a future where human beings drive the decisions, drive economic decisions and drive toward greater equity. And I think that when we displace human artists. Boy, how do you have we already lost the game? I completely agree. Yeah. So that's my news. Uh, And in the news, if you have a hot take on this particular topic, hey, send us an email. I'd love to read your mail and uh, talk about some of the stuff that you think about. 
So, what you been reading? What have I been reading? You want to do kind of an alternating, like you do one, I'll do one? Sure. Yeah. So, sadly, while I was on the beach, I only read one book. Oh. Yeah, it was kind of a crazy week. Yeah. I burned the shit out of my leg on day one. I saw those pictures. Yeah, it was, it was bad. Can't share those pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I had higher hopes for reading, but I only got... Well, no, I take that back. I finished one, started and finished, and then I started my second one that I will, you know, tell you. I can't tell you anything about it because it's going to be one of our interviews, but I started it. Mm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the book that I did start and finish was um, the last book in Nikki St. Crow's um, retelling of Peter Pan. Oh. The Fae Princes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this one was called, uh, yeah, The Fae Princes. I don't know why I was like, it's it's called Nerd. <laughs> yeah, The Fae Princes was book four of the series. Uh-huh. Um, so it wrapped everything up, and yeah, I was sad that it was over, but it was it was a good series. That was the one that you bought me with the the beautiful yeah, cover. Yeah, really, the really pre- Well, she sent that to you. I like I I just asked for some book plates, and she sent that to you. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, Nikki. She's incredible. She was so kind. Yeah, unbelievably kind. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So thumbs up. Thumbs up, yeah. And let's let's talk spice. What's what's the spice level of this one? It was a four. Oh, so that's like a what? What is what did I say a four was? I always forget this stupid uh, scale that I made. Yeah, I don't remember what you said four is was. It, it, is this like standing over a subway grate? Like oh. <laughs> no, we said that wasn't four? safe. Remember, it would burn your butt. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's still spice. That's still hot. Yeah. Just like literally hot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's up there. Was it? Is it? Uh, is it like uh, uh, mop your forehead, sweaty, kind of hot, or like hotter than that? Um. Was it? I need a cold shower, hot. Mm, no, I'd say cold shower is probably a five. Oh, okay. All right. So it was a step below that. Okay. All right. Wasn't the hottest thing I've read, but so it was it's so like spicy. a it's like a it's like a Gatorade on a hot day. Yeah. Okay. All right. This none of this scale makes any sense. No, nope. no, it doesn't. We'll keep making up the scale every time. Yep. But, but a four spice meter. That's good. Yeah. That's quite spicy. Yep. All right. Well, I read um, I read Survive the Night by Riley Sager. This came out in 2021. It's a thriller. About a girl who uh, her roommate is murdered and she wants to get out of town because she can't live with the guilt. She suspects that the guy driving her out of town is probably the murderer of her friend. Hmm. There's a lot of twists and turns in this book. It is very centered on, I think, like old thriller cinema. It has a structure that tries to kind of mimic um, the mind's eye of uh, cinema, cinematic structure, right? And um, it goes pretty over the top. It's got some good twists and turns. If you're into thrillers, I, I felt like this was a really fun one. I, I really enjoyed it. There were a couple of tropes that I probably could have done without. One in particular I felt was kind of like, I'm tired of this trope. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I don't necessarily think that that should uh, deter anyone from this book. I had a fun time with it. And I think if the premise sounds like something you'd enjoy, I can recommend it. Hmm. Yeah. What other books did you read? Was that the only one? You said you had a couple. Yeah, I have two more. One of them I can't really talk about. but um, <laughs> called, Well, you can mention it. I'm going to mention it, yeah. yes. The, the other book that I took to the beach with me, uh, Called to the Deep, mm-hmm. uh, Desiree's book that we yeah. will be talking to her about in July. Yeah. Yeah. Loved it. Five stars. Five star read. Yeah. See, that's the kind of thing that I really want to hear. What's the basic premise? Just hit us with that basic premise. Um, people eating mermaid. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, so let's, let's talk spice level. How's the spice level? The spice in this one, well, it's not like normal. It's not a normal smut book for me, but mm-hmm. it did have mm-hmm. a little bit of smut. Uh-huh. Um, I'm, not, I'm not faulting her at all. Um, it, the smut was still good. Um, but it... Compared to my other books, it was probably a two. Right. Um, but it was the perfect amount of spot for the story. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. That's what you like. You like to have a book that it's like when you when you roll into it, it's like this fits. Yes. Yeah. If it had more, I feel like it might have felt off balance. But uh-huh. it definitely worked. But the basic premise is um, the main character, Lorelai, she... Um, she survives a shipwreck, um, and she doesn't know why she's the only survivor, but it, it's because she, um, her latent mermaid um, DNA kicks in, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and she doesn't mm-hmm. realize it at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, but she is captured, not captured, why did I say captured? She is saved, pulled out of the water by uh, uh-huh. her, you know, soon-to-be lover, yeah. Killian. Hunky uh, Killian. Captor- Captor, Captain Killian Quinn. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so anyway, those two together kind of, uh-huh. um, they, she kind of sticks close to him because yes. she's in a town that she's yes, not familiar yes, yes. with. And uh, they kind of try to figure out what's going on. And, you know, yeah, one thing leads to another and she finds out she's a mermaid. And Hey, that's it. sometimes that's how it works. Yeah. That's how it goes. Uh, yeah, I know you really loved this book. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of funny because uh, you loved the book. Our new intern, Eva, um, I was talking to her about... Because she started reading it? She, she. I don't think she started reading it because she's reading Whalefall right now. Oh, I see how you are. You uh-huh. got her to read your favorite book uh-huh, first. Yeah, well, that's the way that interns work, isn't it? No. <laughs> no, but uh, when I told her, you know, Desiree Nicolay was uh, was probably going to come on, uh, and she was like, "Oh, I, you know, what has she written?" And I told her, uh, "Well, she's got like, you know, kind of a, a killer mermaid romance." And she was like, "I want to read that book," <laughs> so I bought her a copy, and and uh, I think that, I think it's going to be a really cool interview, just a, a cool opportunity to talk about it. So. Very much looking forward to that. Well, um, my other I, – I read a whole bunch of books. I read like seven books in the, the last – since the last episode we had. Uh, I read Stein Tingler's 2 by R.L. Stein. This is his second collection of new short fiction, brand new short fiction. Uh, this one's expected to be published August 29th, 2023. Look, if you read the first one – Stein Tinglers, I think that this is 
uh, a lot more of the same and I, I can definitely recommend it if R.L. Stein is your thing or you know a kid who's in those middle grades and really wants to read some horror. This is super fun stuff. And in fact, I think Stein Tinglers 2 as a whole collection is actually better than the first one. I felt like the stories were even more consistent than that first one was. So I loved the first one, but the second one was even better. Uh, 10 great stories. Same stuff I had to praise about the last book, the last collection. Um, Yeah, watch for this one in August. This is definitely one of those books that I think is going to fit on any young horror enthusiast's shelves quite nicely. Okay. I was never really a fan of Arlstein. Really? Why is that? Because I wasn't a horror fan until I met you. Oh, well, you know, that's true. I have that way with people. Yeah, I wasn't um, a nerd. and I mean, I was a nerd before you, but I wasn't like a a Marvel nerd mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. you. I wasn't a comic nerd before you. You, yeah. have, you have a way. I do have a way. Yeah. yeah. I hope you know how much I appreciate that you saw my interests and were like, will you teach me about your interests? Yeah. I mean, you're you're doing a lot of the same thing uh, for me right now. You know, just person to person, you've introduced me to to romance that is not anything that I w- probably would have read before, and I'm I'm really enjoying it. I like the conversations that we have about romance, and I I like the way that you kind of educate me about its tropes and and what makes things good or what makes things bad. And I know we trade a lot of jokes about it, but. Uh, it really does open up a lot of richness for me. So I'm I'm really appreciative of that. I love you. I love you too. <laughs> what was your third book? Uh, I finally, finally, finally finished Midnight Neverwood. Oh, that's right. Now, this was a slow start for you. Yes. This yeah. was the one, I think it was on my TBR for six months. Yeah. I'm who, not kidding. Who wrote this one? Um, I hope I don't butcher her last name. Uh, Maria Kuzniar. Okay. Um, if I butchered that, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, it sat on my side table for probably six months. Yeah, I was going to say and this was, was a And I was so freaking one. excited about it because mm-hmm. um, Stephanie Garber, you know, recommended it. And she wrote yeah. Caraval, and yeah. I loved it. And you love Caraval. And, um, Caraval really kind of got you into uh, uh, fantasy. Well, I mean, I enjoyed fantasy before that, but yeah, that that got me. It was like, it was like Caraval and then Sarah J. Moss. Yeah, just like Sarah completely J. Moss. sold yeah. you on it. Yeah, but yeah, she recommended it, um, saying that it was you know definitely a fan or definitely for fans of Caraval. Uh, yeah, for Caraval, um, and it was a retelling of uh, the Nutcracker. And you oh, know how much okay. I love ballet. I know how much, I, and specifically the Nutcracker. Yes. Yeah. So I was like, oh, my gosh, this is right up my alley. And the first, I'm not kidding, the first 98 pages, it was mm. just so boring. Mm. I was like, this is nothing like I expected. Mm. And it just, it kept drawing on and on and on. And then literally it was like where I stopped, where my bookmark mm-hmm. was, it was like right where I guess all the action started. Mm. It, um, and it was kind of... It's a scene where, um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Nutcracker, but 
uh, I think it's Dosselmeyer or Drosselmeyer. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which one it is, so forgive me. Uh, I think it's Dosselmeyer. Anyway, in this book, he's the bad guy. Um, he proposes to the girl, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and he's mm-hmm. much older than her. And right. she tells him no, and he uses his magic to send her through this grandfather clock uh-huh. into another world as punishment. Right. And so it's literally as he sends her through this clock into the other world and she steps into the snowy woods. Mm-hmm. That Which that's the kind of the call to adventure, right? Yeah. Like that's in, in the mythical cycle, right? Like yeah. that's when the story starts to pick up. Well, that at that point I was just kind of like, okay, this can either be where it turns good or where it turns bad. But I guess <laughs> I just put my bookmark down and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to come back to this. <laughs> I don't know how much more of this I can take. Yeah. But just recently, maybe what? When did I pick it up again? Like it two, was, it was like in, within the last couple of weeks. Within the last week and a half, two weeks, yeah. I picked it up. And I'm like, okay, I have to get through this. Yeah, I'm just gonna do it. And I think yeah. I read it within two days. Yeah, because it just got so much better. Yeah, the action picked up, like you said. That was when everything unfolded. Right. The story just came alive, and that was what I had been waiting on. So yeah. it's like, for anybody who wants to read it. Get through the first hundred pages. <laughs> yeah. just, the story. I mean, you needed to get through the first hundred pages. Obviously, it had a point, yeah. but yeah. the action didn't start. Right. And the ending was great. It was. I was kind of sad because it wasn't exactly what I had hoped for. Right. Because um, she has to leave her love behind. You yeah. know, In that world. Yeah. And he promises her, "I, I promise you, I'll see you again someday." And you kind of hope at her, you know, last performance that maybe he'll be in the audience waiting for her. And he wasn't. <laughs> so, you know, you're just like let down. But mm. it was still a great book. Yeah. I don't remember if I gave it four or five stars, but. I, I feel like you gave it four. Did I like give that. it four? Yeah, because that, you know, it's hard to give something five stars when you know it's got some problems. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, when you know it's kind of sh- slow or, or whatever. I'm pretty sure you gave it four stars, though. No, I don't remember, yeah. but... I do know that when you closed it, you were like, this was way better than I had given it credit for at first. Yeah. Yeah, you were pretty enthusiastic about it when you were done. Yeah. Yeah. And you did you did fly through that, that you know... And it was like another 215 pages. Yeah, yeah. You really flew through that last 60% or whatever. But yeah, for any of my listeners that were just like, please get through this book... <laughs> I finally got through it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, uh, I read a whole bunch more stuff, and I'll just go through it pretty quickly. Nobody likes a bragger. I know. Well, it's it's just because I I, I had a whole week where I could just do laundry and read. (laughs) I miss me. Yeah. Well, of course, I always miss you. But you're like, and that hag was away. So I had peace and quiet. As if you were ever a hag. (laughs) No, I just, uh, it was like the calm before um, finals and stuff. And I was like, you know, now is the time. If, if ever there were a time, now it now is when it is. Um, so I read uh, Killer Be Killed, Home Wrecker by William Sterling. This is the second of his series, Killer Be Killed. I interviewed him on the show just a couple weeks back. You can listen to that episode and some of the stuff that I share with him. But I genuinely thought Killer Be Killed 2 was even better than the first one. And I enjoyed the first one. I had a lot of fun with it. 
The second one I felt like really came into its storytelling beats, really delivered some of the big character arc stuff he's going for, and it had just a bananas final act. Just absolutely like, where the hell did you even come up with this, William? Um, I really, really enjoyed it. And if you are a fan of indie slashers, I think this is a ton of summer fun. So this book is coming out in June of this year. Um, You can watch for it. You can follow William Sterling at Spooky Sterling on his socials. You can listen back to our episode with him. You can also follow him on uh, the Killer Mediums podcast. I think he's a lot of fun to listen to. He's a lot of fun to read. And Killer Be Killed Homewrecker was a very good time for me. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, Then I read Star Wars Shield of Lies by Michael P. Kuby McDowell. I'm not going to talk about the book too much because I'm going to save it for my Star Wars update 1997 which may come toward the end of the summer. I'm still working through 1996. It's insane. It was like tw- it's like 25 books or something like that from 1996. I still maintain you're insane. I am absolutely this. insane. Uh, this book was hella boring. Oh my god, it was one of the most boring Star Wars books I've ever read, and yet it has it's good stuff. I'm not gonna lie that there's some good stuff in it, um, but I. I don't know. It was so boring. It was just such a boring book. Um, Then I read Whale Fall by Daniel Krauss. This is a book that is expected August 8th, 2023. We're going to have him on the show in a couple weeks uh, where we're going to talk about this book. But holy shit, is this book incredible. Just utterly incredible. It's about a guy. He goes out looking for his dad's remains in the ocean and he is swallowed by a whale and he's got about an hour's left of air to figure out how he's going to escape the whale it is so much more than what it sounds like it is emotionally uh impactful and and emotionally complex there is a lot of narrative complexity that Krauss weaves into this book he's done his research it's a what he calls kind of a scientifically plausible story um, in the sense that a lot of the stuff he does uh, is actually quite feasible. If someone were swallowed by a sperm whale, that's probably how it would look. Um, So it's got some of that narrative tension that you'd probably expect in like The Martian from Andy Weir, um, stuff like that. But the emotional beats of this story are just phenomenal. This is in probably my top 15 books of all time that's up there that's fucking up there and i'm not lying about it it had me breathless and sometimes i had to put the book down and just stare into the savor it just just taste it uh it it was just uh, it's a gorgeous novel my my gosh i don't know how this guy does it because i've i've read several of his books and you know I'm a, a big fan of Daniel Krauss. Yep. I've always, you know, since the first book I read from him, uh, I was a fan. But, I mean, everything he does is so different from the other stuff. And this is so much different than anything he's ever written. And it is amazing. I, I think it's probably the best thing he's ever written. Maybe not the best thing he'll ever write, but to date, he's written like 21 books. 
I think this is the best one. I'll have to read it. It's incredible. Oh, my gosh. I, I absolutely love it. So cannot plug it enough. Um, then I read This Thing Between Us by Gus Moreno uh, from 2021. This is about a man whose wife dies quite unexpectedly, and he is left in a world that just doesn't make sense to him anymore. He's haunted by some strange things, some pretty terrible uh, entities that do not necessarily have the nicest of plans for the human race. And uh, he kind of has to deal with his um, just his guilt and, and his uh, sense of loss, his grief. Uh, emotionally, I think this was a very cohesive story. It was a very um, kind of complex story. Uh, reflection on grief and cycles of grief from a plot standpoint I felt it was really incoherent um, and I don't mean like I couldn't understand what was going on I just mean like it feels like it's trying to do way too many things at once and none of those things come together into a co like a really coherent plot right yeah so um, it was, you know, I, it was like a three star read for me, something that I enjoyed for the most part. Um, but I kind of hesitate to, to uh, like heartily recommend. I think those that are interested in this kind of story are really going to get a lot out of it. For me, I was really impressed by the emotional complexity of it all. And I felt like that was what kept me going through the book was that I could resonate with that emotional complexity, but the actual story, the actual plot lost me a couple of times. And I felt like I really struggled to put together exactly what it was that he was trying to do. I felt like there were just too many ideas thrown in that didn't quite shape up for the whole plot of the book. But, you know, I like, I don't know. It's a very unique piece of art and I respect that. And I especially respect the way that he constructs this very difficult emotion, you know, in the pages for this character, because uh, grief is difficult to grapple with and it can be overwhelming. And I think that's very well portrayed in this book. So I liked it. I, I mean, I did like it, um, but I, I also am just like, you know, I, I, I'm also not again going to admit like I, I think it had some problems in places. And um, I would I'd just go in with open eyes, you know, say, uh, if you're going to read this book, you know, just know um, there's <laughs> there's a lot to grapple with in there. And maybe you'll get a lot out of it and maybe you won't. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. And then the last book that we read together and the focus for today's episode is The Cybernetic Tea Shop by Meredith Katz. This came out in 2016. Yep. And this is a book that you read. Uh, you kind of came across it on Goodreads. Yeah, just randomly. Yeah, just randomly. And you you were like, hey, this looks cool. This looks cheap. It was, we, we got it on our Kindles. And uh, it's a novella. It's mm -hmm. not very long. But what spoke to you about this book? Like, what, what stood out about this book that uh, you were immediately like, I got to talk to Trevor about this book? Well, the first thing that spoke to me was just the cover art. Yeah, so the cover art to this is just a, it's, it's a, a cup of tea. With a couple of uh, cogs and yeah. wheels. Mm-hmm. 
sitting next to it. And then just the name. Yeah. It's a it's a cozy looking book. Yes. Very cozy looking very book. Very cozy. Um what made me want to share it with you was um well the book that we're gonna do another one of our podcasts on. Mm-hmm. A psalm for the Wild Built. For yeah. the Wild Built, yeah. Yeah, by Becky Chambers. That you had loved so it's much. A book I'm obsessed with. Book that made me cry. But that book is actually in my top ten. Yeah. So it's the conversation that we had had with your book club about that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that it was uh, sapphic. Mm. Um, this this one is sapphic, yes, right? The cybernetic tea shop is yeah. sapphic, yeah. And not only was it sapphic, um, one of the characters is, well, one is AI and one no, is a robot. asexual. Right. So I, just to kind of pitch this uh, book so that we're all on the same page. What it, What is the story of this book? I'll pitch from what I can remember. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, main character, uh, Clara. Yeah. You say it. <laughs> Clara. I'm, Clara. Clara. I'm Clara. Yeah. Clara is what I'm going to say. Clara is fine. Clara. Yeah. Clara. Clara um, Gutierrez. Gutierrez, yes. Yeah. She uh, moves to Seattle. Um, she's a traveler. She likes to, mm-hmm. she doesn't stay in one place very long. Yeah, she has a bit of the wanderlust. Yeah. She just likes to move about. And so she moves to Seattle for a change of pace. And she, would you say she's an engineer? She's not an engineer. She's a, she's like kind, a, a, she, yeah, a mechanic. She's, I would call her a mechanic or an engineer. Sure, yeah. Um, and she works on AI she um, she works in both AI and robots. Yeah. yeah, but mostly robotics. But she does AI coding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we talk about AI coding, we're talking about like genuine artificial intelligence, right? Yeah. Intelligent, like like creatures that are able to make their own decisions, even if those decisions are based on limited programming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she moves here, and one of her. Uh, one of her coworkers, who knows that she loves tea, mm-hmm. um, recommends this tea shop. Called the Cybernetic Tea Shop. Yeah, the Cybernetic Tea Shop. Um, and she tells her that she needs to go check it out. And yeah. so she goes yeah. and finds out that it is run by mm-hmm. Sal. Right, Sal. This AI. Uh-huh. And she's never, never seen a robot in person. Right. Yeah, when we say in in AI, Sal is a robot. Yeah, Sal is a robot. Yeah. A, fe- a, hu- a female humanoid robot. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's very surprised, mm-hmm. and uh, they quickly become friends. Yeah. Um, and then eventually they fall in love. Right. And yeah, they, that's... they kind of become partners. Yeah. I mean, that, I feel like that's the the good. That's rundown. the gist. Yeah. yeah. We are gonna break into some spoiler territory pretty quickly here as we continue our conversation about this book if you're interested in it and you don't want it spoiled it's like 100 pages you can pause the episode and you can come back in two hours and listen to the rest Um, I highly recommend this book Um, honestly I really felt like it hit the spot for me it's you know cozy romance sci-fi um very little barrier to entry. It's like three bucks on uh, on Kindle, and um, it's like a hundred pages. It's not going to take you very much time. So, 
I'm going to give uh, three to five seconds, and then we will start into some spoilers. How about some spoilers? Mm-hmm. What do you think? All right. So one of the things that I think this book does, because it's not just about how Sal and Clara meet, it's also about um, some of the stuff that happens to Sal. Sal's a robot. She's been around for 300 years. Or just close, about. Co- close to 300 years. Yeah. She's been running this tea shop for like 278 years or something like that. And um, she wants to make it to 300 years, but she is the target of some hate crimes uh, perpetrated by some random people in her community that are not cool with robots. We get a bit of a picture of the way that robots are thought of and treated in this society. Because she's one of the last few remaining. She's one of the last few remaining robots um, with experiments with AI. Clara is an AI designer slash mechanic, engineer, whatever you want to call it. Um, But she plays with these little things that are not like fully – they're sentient but not sapient. And I think that that is what differentiates the robot from like the – the little uh, pet AIs that people have uh, that they kind of carry around as robotic pets. And she has one, Joni. Yeah, Joni is her hummingbird. little hummingbird uh, pet, yeah, which is pretty cute. There's mm-hmm. there's some cute little dialogue exchanges between Clara and Joni. Um, anyway, Sally has been around for these hundreds of years, but human or uh, rather robots uh, don't necessarily have full personhood under the law, which I think is interesting. That's an interesting choice. Um, but there's also some contemplation, I think, about just what do we do with robots? What do we do with AI? What do we do with any of this stuff? And as a metaphor, and I'll get into that in a sec, but as a metaphor, I think it's coded for some other stuff. It's not just about robots and robotic discrimination. Uh, but anyway, uh, Sal, uh, after she meets Clara, they kind of have um, a bit of a, a meet-cute together, and they get to know each other. They start falling in love. There's this question of, like, you know, it, it's an asexual romance. There's no sex sex anywhere. Um and they have a very clear conversation about what a relationship with two asexual people kind of uh, means, how that kind of shakes out, which I think is a really interesting wrinkle in this kind of a romance story. Mm-hmm. Um, but as they uh, kind of you know meet and decide that they're going to be together, they're going to be a couple, they're going to be romantic partners, even though they're asexual partners, um, Sal is is again increasingly the target of some some hate crimes, uh, which culminates in the burning down of her cybernetic tea shop, um, and that resolves into kind of the happily ever after. Weirdly, because it seems like that would be uh, catastrophic, but um, story wise, this is kind of the catalyst for uh, Clara to kind of resolve her wanderlust alongside Sal, who also um, kind of lets go of some of the things that are holding her back from really embracing this relationship. Well, Sal has 
grief from her previous owner, mm-hmm. her previous lo- owner slash lover. Right. Um, her registration. Um, it's to a woman named Corrine, I think. Yeah, Corrine. Corrine, Corinne. Something. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember her name. Um, so pretty much she was hardwired, in essence, mm-hmm. to her her previous owner. Um, right. And so all these hundreds of years since she died, she has all of her memories of her. Mm-hmm. And she essentially, she can't let go right. because of that hardwiring and mm-hmm. her registration. And she's, she just lives, her purpose yeah. is to live for that tea shop. And so right. she, day in and day out until she meets uh, Cl- Clara, um, is to just be there for the tea shop. Um, yeah. She doesn't leave. She doesn't right. go anywhere. Right, right. Um, and it's not until that she asks her, hey, you know, I trust you. Can you remove my registration? Yeah. Um, Which is an interesting, this is an interesting thing, right? There's this, because um, Clara can kind of go in and actually like erase the line of code that keeps um, uh, Sal, you know, kind of trapped up in her need, her, her like hard line need uh, to be in that tea shop. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of interesting. And so when I come to a book like this, right, of course, everyone knows I'm the symbolic reader. Like, that's what I like to do. So I got to pose, like, symbolically, what what do we think that Katz is, is doing here? What do we think Katz is saying, you know, through this story about loss and new love and... Uh, memory and grief, you know, how, how how are all of these things kind of related to one another? I tell you, I wish it was as easy as taking something <laughs> out of the back of my neck to be able to forget a previous lover and to be able to move on. Yeah. To be fair, your your the the form of grief that you've been going through is not for a lover. Uh, no, is a it's a different kind of grieving. That grief would be. I wish I there was something that you could just take out of my body to get over that too. But right, and I the, mean that's and, kind of the nature of grief, right? Like yeah. the because grief is ultimately you know just to, lo, the loss of a person, the loss of something, and the longing for that thing. So it can absolutely manifests different ways you know you're you're grieving the loss of a parent not necessarily the loss of a lover but i think we also can grieve relationships right we can grieve oh, you most definitely can yeah yeah we can grieve uh uh the the people that kind of came before and and uh i mean shoot i had nightmares about that all last night what were you dreaming last night i i absolutely had a dream about an ex that uh just like randomly showed up and I was trying to grab like just like rake my head through that that was wild hmm it was very upsetting I believe it yeah I mean how do you how do you get over that stuff well in Sal's instance you just remove the hardware 
Well, but I think this is what's interesting about this story for me, right? Like, Sal can't get over Corinne, even though it's been, you know, hundreds of years. But it takes a new person. It takes the next person, really, to, to like, suture that wound, right? To find the to splinter. To literally suture it. Yeah, yeah to, to find the splinter and to remove the splinter that's causing pain, you know? I mean, I, th- I think about a lot of my failed relationships. I, th- I think about the, the stuff that, uh, you know, that I can't take back or the stuff that happened. And, and, you know, maybe I'm not so super fine with all that happened. Uh, but then I think, you know, I met you. Those relationships ended. And then we went on an eight-hour date. And... Uh, you know, bippity boppity boom, here we are, married for almost nine years. And, and I think about how lucky I am to have found you, you know? Mm-hmm. I think a lot about the things that I went through and the things that hurt the most about those other relationships. And I think that in getting over those relationships, I needed to see the person who was right for me. You know, I needed to see you who did the things that I was missing in those other relationships, you know, that that wasn't working for me. You came in and you helped cross out the line of ownership, you know, to my heart and replaced it with something better. In in this case, it's literally she just gets rid of it and uh, she doesn't replace it with anything else. She leaves that agency up you know back to to sal which i think is quite beautiful it is it's very beautiful that she's like are you going to replace it and put your own and clodar says no is that because it's not really about ownership it's about partnership yeah it's about partnership and she wanted her to have her own agency mm-hmm. um, so that one day when they went their separate ways when she yeah. died which is also kind of beautiful because it, it kind of insinuates that a relationship can only work so long as you choose the relationship yeah she and didn't, you get to choose She the didn't want to force it on her. Right. But, what, like, thinking back to the grief of her, you know, previous lover, she wasn't trying to erase her lover um, because mm-hmm. she had bad memories. I th- no. It was simply that mm-hmm. it was so ingrained she was living for her, her lover. Well, and this is another... She was living her lover's mm-hmm. choice. You know, yes. her lover said, run the shop for 300 years yes and that's yes. all she could do she wasn't living for herself that yes. wasn't making her happy any longer and now she was confronted with the possibility of a new relationship yeah but her hardwiring was like no you can't do that yeah this it, is what it, we have it, to wouldn't live it for. be disrespectful well, yeah and i think that's it's, you make a really good point too right like this is a different kind of grief than just regret Right. Because there's regret over a relationship that failed. But then there's the relationship that succeeded, which is like what the relationship Sal and Corinne had, you know, but but ends because of natural causes. Right. (laughs) You know, like she outlives her lover. And I I think that this is this creates a new a a different kind of grief. Right. Yeah. The, 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 The grief that is not about regret, but rather about loss, you know, just real loss, genuine loss. And um and I think that's kind of beautiful. I still think that there's this, con- con- you know, kind of contemplation about um, not, you, you know, y- you can't necessarily get over it until you find 
the person, the community, the whatever, the thing that enables you to kind of move past, to, to recover for yourself your ability to determine your own future. Yeah. And I think that's some of the, the you know, difficulty of grief is like a feeling of obligation to the other person. Am I living up to their expectations? When the question shouldn't be, am I living up to their expectations? But more like, am I living the life that makes me happiest? Am I doing the thing that is rightest for me? Not the memory of the other person, but for me in this moment. Yeah. Because she's not there to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as much as you wish she could, you know. Right. She's not. Yeah. You, you have to live for you. Yeah. You can't live for the memory of someone else. You have to live for you. I, the other thing that I really loved about this story, other than its cozy vibes, you know, I really loved um, this, you know, kind of plot about uh, the discrimination that Sal faces and the, the way that these hate crimes are kind of perpetrated against her. I don't love hate crimes. You know, don't get me wrong. Uh, but I think that the, this book does a lot to kind of show the pain, the agony, you know, the real damage that is done to a person that, that can be totally debilitating um, when they are victims of a, a hate crime, mm -hmm. when they're a survivor of a hate crime, you know. And um, in the case of Sal, these hate crimes really do completely upend and make her life um, unbearable, unlivable. And I think Katz does this very cleverly by making, you know, uh, Sal a robot. I felt symbolically as though uh, Sal was kind of uh, metaphorically representative of the LGBTQIA plus community. And, and for me specifically, it, it felt like she was coded as trans, although I, I don't necessarily know. Like the character was not trans, right, to be very clear. Um, but there's this idea of her constantly being objectified by the people around her, um, being kind of the freak or being the curio, you know, the, the object of curiosity, um, that even in her best day, in the best of circumstances, few people could see past the fact that she was a robot to see her as a, a, a sapient, sentient being, right? Someone with agency, someone with personality, someone with real wants and real needs. It wasn't, I thought it was, you know, even though uh, their first encounter, her and uh, Clara, mm -hmm. um, obviously she stared at her. Right. But yeah. she immediately apologized. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you know, I hope I didn't hurt your feelings. Yeah. But, you know, I realized you probably do have feelings because you're a person. And she's like, right. no, I'm not. And she's like, there, yeah. yes, you are. There's this weird kind of desensitization uh, that, that Sal feels, right? Because she's, she's othered so thoroughly through her whole experience that the first person to come in and say, like, you know, I see you. Yeah. <laughs> I see you for who, for the being the unique 
person that you are. Maybe you're not human, but you're a person. Yeah, you're a person with feelings that needs to be respected. Yeah, and at the, the end of the day, the textbook definitions we wrap around these terms don't mean anything. You're still, you're still a person. You still matter. You still have, have um, value, you know, worth. You, you still, um, <laughs> I mean, just, just by virtue of existing, you, you have purpose. You have space, you know, you matter. And she kept trying to read Sal's body language. Uh-huh. She was like, she would notice how her eyes would, you know, expand and mm-hmm. contract. Yep. And she was like, you know, I can't really tell if she's grimacing because her her mouth, you know, she doesn't smile. But, um, mm-hmm. but she was treating her the whole time as a person. Yeah. Trying to understand her emotions yeah. the, like she would any other human being. Right. And I just loved it. Yeah, I felt like the the relationship between the two of them was really something kind of pure. And and moreover, like I said, I, I felt like it had some strong um, representation. Like I, I really felt like Sal was kind of coded as, uh, at, at the very least, you know, some something in the queer community. You know, as representative of the the queer community. And and just the the devastation that she feels over the things that are said to her or the things that, you know, the little microaggressions she suffers um, from the people around her. There's that couple that come in to the cafe at the very beginning of the story with Sal. Yeah. And um, they just make a spectacle of her. They make a spectacle of her, which in it, you know, maybe you don't think that that's hurting anything. Um but it does, you know. That's a that's a microaggression that is felt, and it it's dehumanizing to Sal, and and so it takes so much work, so much effort for Sal to to reclaim her identity from those microaggressions, yeah. To reclaim her sense of self, you know. Clara assists a lot in that rehabilitation for that character, but I feel. Like, I mean, like eyes, <laughs> eyes open. Like, you know, I can see the conversation kind of being prompted, being had. You know, here's Sal, this uh, really just a wonderful person who is, you know, kind of told over and over and over again to not believe in her personhood. And I, I think that this book goes a long way to kind of suggests like you're worthy of person personhood right just because of your circumstances might be different from uh what people want to normalize doesn't mean that you're abnormal right yeah Uh, and uh and you belong in these spaces just as much as anyone else belongs in those spaces yeah and and moreover that the things that maybe you think are innocuous aren't so innocuous yeah they, you know, your actions, the things you say, the things you think, the things you put out into the world really do matter. They really do impact other people. Yeah. So think about how you interact and why you interact and what you're doing. Yeah. There was another piece. I don't know how to wrap it into everything else, but there was, like I told you last night, the one piece that really s- said something to me was when... 
Sal was talking. Well, it was somewhere in that scene where she was talking to the police officer. She was serving him soup. And she had gone back to the kitchen. And she realized, you know, someday my memory is going to mm. slip. Yeah. And I'm not going to remember how to make this soup anymore. But I know I have it written out in my recipes. But, mm. you know, my lover was the one that taught me how to make this. And what if it doesn't taste the same, making it just straight from ingredients? You know, what if I lose the memory of how she looked when she cooked this or how she told me, you know, you have to do it just a certain way because, you know, don't they say that everything tastes better when it's made with love, when it's made from memories? Mm. And it's like, you can't tell me a robot doesn't have feelings <laughs> when they realize consciously uh -huh. that food made with love, you know, made from memories like that, that it doesn't taste better, that, you know... Well, and does this not tie into our concept of, of human art, right? I mean, to draw it back to that, I, I, I see it relating to our conversation in two ways. The one is, of course, this is another facet of grief, another facet of what is lost, right? Like the idea that, sure, okay, maybe we have these same ingredients and we have this same um, recipe, but it, it's not always just about following the recipe. There's something else that is done in the process of making a soup that makes it into the thing it is. Yeah, okay, we could put all the ingredients together, but there's a process to putting those in ingredients together. And the process is what matters. How you do stuff matters, right? Yeah. Whether it be how you cook the onions or how you slice the ingredients when you add whatever to the the mix, how you how long you let it sit and settle or what have you. And she made comments I'm making myself about, hungry for soup. <laughs> she made comment of how she remembered how her lover's hair would fall into her face. Yeah. And how she would look rolling the dough. Yes. And it's just you remember those things when you're cooking something with somebody yes, that you care course, about. Of course. And, and that makes it more special, which makes yeah. everything taste better. Yeah. Yeah. So to your point, I think, you know, again, I feel like this relates to our conversation about like AI art and human art. There's something missing. Yeah. Okay. You could train an AI to do the same thing that, uh, you know, a writer does, but it, it can't make those conscious choices. It can't understand the subtext of what you're aiming to, to discuss, what you're aiming to, to put together. And that's the missing ingredient. You know, that's the, the missing sauce. The human element is what elevates something from raw material to art. Yeah. And it's just like food. It's just like literature or writing, right? The person doing it imbibes it with personality. And yeah. if they're not there to do that, we lose something. We lose something in the in the exchange. So whether it be about art and crafting art or whether it be about preserving memory, right? I mean these things are, are important and they're they're part of the fabric of human life. And it's important for us to respect that human fabric. Yeah. Good catch. I had forgotten about the soup thing. You're right. That is a, a very important thematic element to the story. I love it. Now I'm hungry. 
I'm hungry for soup. Maybe we should get out of here. <laughs> um, the, look, this cybernetic tea shop by Meredith Katz. Um, this was a beautiful, cozy read. I definitely recommend it. It is one of those books that um, I went in expecting very little, and I came out with way, way more than I anticipated. I think it is a complex piece of work in spite of how very short it is. And I, I'm, to be honest, I don't think the lover's name was Corinne. Oh, shit. What was it? I want to say it started with an M. No, it didn't start with an M. Are you sure? I'm like 95% certain it was Corinne. I don't know why, but Corinne feels wrong. Uh, so, we'll uh, Meredith, we'll if you're listening it. or you listen at any point, I'm sorry if we butchered that. I'm not going to lie. I did put out an email to her this morning. And yeah, I said, real hey, sorry, I, Meredith. I really want to talk to you about this book. I feel real bad if we got that wrong. We'll see if she ever responds. I don't know. I'm not going to, you know, I never hold my breath for this stuff, but I always get excited when we do. So, yeah, I really hope you're listening, but I really hope we got that right. I'm pretty sure I got it right. Well, let's hope we did. Somebody can read and fact check me. <laughs> you know what? I'll tell you what. I'm going to put it out there. Because I, I highly doubt anyone will take me up on it. But even if they do, it's only $3. If you pick up this novella and you read it and you discover that the name of the former lover was not Corinne, I will give you $3 for the book. Or he'll just buy you the book and send it to you. Well, no, that that's not how it works. You can't read the book and then no, you and then have me buy the book for you. Oh, I was going to say you could buy it on Amazon and mail it. Oh, I'm, that's $8. Oh, I yeah, that's true. I only have, I only have $3. Never mind. He'll this. just give you $3. I like. The first, for the first person. So if you're not the first person, <laughs> I'm not giving you $3. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. <clears throat> hope, you, hope you read it. Hope you love it. I hope you read it, and I hope you love it, too. Hey, you know what I like to read and also love? Hmm. You. I don't know how I read you. You read my it's facial It's like a expression. spiritual thing, yeah. You read my facial expression. I do love you, though. And my body language. You read my body language. I read your body language. That's you got some good <laughs> body language. Yeah. See you next week, folks. Bye for now. <laughs>